As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome back to the latest edition of the Until Saturday podcast. I'm Nicole Auerbach. I am joined by two of my favorite people uh, and two of the most hilarious people that we have on staff, Audrey Snyder and Grace Rayner. Audrey covers Penn State and the Big Ten. Grace covers a little bit of everything, national recruiting, used to cover Clemson for us. Um, but ladies, welcome to the show. Glad to have you on. Yay. At the end of the week. Seriously, we would really like to be to be Saturday. We we do this show until Saturday and it's not quite there yet, but you might be listening on a Saturday. Hope everyone is enjoying the off season, which, by the way, has not really slowed down. There's been a ton of news, as you know, by listening to this feed. Uh, you don't want to miss any of it. So be sure to follow this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Help us support us. Drop five-star reviews. Ask us questions. We love to get those reviews. You can also leave us a voicemail on our Until Saturday phone line for future mailbags, 316-462-9852, or go to theathletic.com and you can find prompts for mailbags. And we always take the best questions each week. We've got a couple we're going to get to later in today's show as well. Um, but we're going to start with news of the week. We've been talking about CFP expansion, the d- debates, discussions, everything around that for the last couple of weeks. We finally got some clarity on Wednesday evening about what models are actually, well, what model is getting the most discussion so far. Um, and I want to get your guys' thoughts on this because I don't think we've heard from you guys on CFP expansion, the idea of going larger than a 12-team bracket. So the idea, which we, we definitely need better names for these things, but we'll call it for now the 3-3-2-2-1 model. Uh, it's a 14-team playoff field in a post-realignment world. So this is happening because you have a 16-team SEC, an 18-team Big Ten. The ACC is going to be at 17 plus Notre Dame, the Big 12s, 16. These are big conferences because the Pac-12 is no longer, and it's three automatic qualifying spots for the Big Ten, three for the SEC, two for the ACC, two for the Big 12, one for the highest-ranked group of five champion, and then three at-large spots. 
before I give my thoughts, I want to get your guys. So Audrey, why don't you, you're, you're, you live in big 10 country. So mm-hmm. let's talk about what you make of this 14 team model and, and really the idea of multiple AQs, which does not exist in any American sport. Well, real quick, Nicole, I jotted down the three, three, two, two. I just want to make sure it all adds up to 14. Uh, well, no, because there's three at larges at the end. Right. So, so yeah. the, you got the one, one, one at large. Yeah. I'm just do, yeah, doing so the math here. One, one, one. Yeah. Add the yeah. ones at the end. Yes. Dot, yeah, dot, dot. Great name. Love that. Um, <laughs> it, it just feels like we are going not like not us ourselves, but we as a sport are kind of going out of our way to rethink things that are so far down the line that quite frankly, to me, this feels like a bit of a waste of time because you say, okay, if, if we would have backtracked two years ago, right? We could not have predicted what has happened in this sport in two years. And I get it with TV contracts and all that. You have to think long-term. But to me, it just feels like we're already kind of going against the grain here and saying, okay, well, let's just expand it to 14. Well, let's just see how 12 goes first, right? Like, I don't know. To me, it just seems like we're we're so willing to try to keep throwing darts at the board. And quite frankly, don't we have other issues in this sport that we should maybe be examining before the three, three, two, two, one, one, whatever to get the 14? <laughs> like, can't we maybe dial it back a little bit? Um, that's just just my kind of initial take on it. But yeah, I mean, I think there there's would be a lot of coaches in the Big Ten that would probably say, yeah, hey, that's great for us um, because of the auto qualifiers. But again, um, are we just catering to the Big Two these days? Yeah, I don't like it, I think, for that reason. Um, like, I think that when you look at the Big Ten and the SEC, if we're just continuing to cater to them, like you said, Audrey, we're guaranteeing more teams from those two conferences get in. So we're guaranteeing them more money. More money is going to lead to more resources. They can put that back into their recruiting budgets. They can put it back into whatever they want. They get better players. And then it's just like how, like, is there any hope for anyone else to catch up? Um, so I don't like it for that reason. And then I also don't like it for the sense of like, you said, we haven't even started the 12 team yet. Like, can we just chill for a second? It feels like, Sometimes, like, what do they say? The enemy of good is better. And I'm like, I feel like college football just needs to take a breath. Yeah, I mean, the the fact that we haven't even lived in the world of a 12-team playoff yet and people are already deciding that's not good enough is something that bothers me. I feel like this happens so often in college sports is it takes forever to make decisions. And then even before it takes effect, like, it's been almost three years mm-hmm. to get to the point of having a 12-team field in this five plus seven, which is essentially the same as six plus six, but that was a minor detail. And now all of a sudden, right at the finish line, when ESPN has their offer in hand of what they're going to pay, people want to change it. And I, I understand the reasoning. I know when you're, you have a bigger league, you have more big brands. If you have Michigan, Ohio state, Penn state, Oregon, Washington, USC, like you want as many spots as possible Mm -hmm. for those teams so that they have a successful season. Like their conference schedules are going to be very difficult and they're going to lose games. But I just wonder why needing it as an AQ, right? Like these are the teams that are already going to get in. We know, Audrey, that Penn State would be the biggest beneficiary of the 12 team model because they've been in that five to 12 range a lot of times. So, what do you think? Why do you think the AQ piece is the important piece or what, what's different? Like why, why do that and then not do, we'll just do at large spots. And we know that, you know, our metrics and selection committee tends to pick big 10 and SEC teams anyway. 
I think you hit the nail on the head with the branding piece, Nicole. Like, I think that is so much of a part of this is you want the big brands because they have the big fan bases and all that. Um, we're still here in the, I guess we, should we call it the 14 minus two model and the 12 team model? Um, <laughs> we're still trying to figure out like how these teams are going to host on-campus playoff games. Like it's going to be right. during graduate. Like we're still, right. we've got a boatload of issues here that we're still dealing with, with the 12 team model. Um, part of that, which I wonder with the autom- automatic qualifier piece, what parameters, if any, are going to be put in place for scheduling? Right. I know that one of the things that's come up time and time again, um, especially with the team I cover with Penn State, it's saying, okay, well, why should we if we're playing in this this mega conference? Right. Why should we still have to follow and abide by rules saying that, you know, hey, we can only have this many uh, this many non-conference games. Right. Like and how are we going to judge all of these other teams on the same parameters? Um, So, yeah, to me, the automatic qualifying piece um, is a little bit bizarre other than you want to cater to brands, I suppose. So um, you want to yeah, it's weird. This is what, this is what I think it does. Um, it takes the risk of having a human selection committee out of it. So if you don't mm-hmm. know if the selection committee is going to evaluate, like we all know Michigan's 2024 schedule is just insane, right? Yes. Like part because they have the Texas as a non-conference game, but like you look at it and you're like, holy crap, look at mm-hmm. these teams the Big Ten is adding and how much harder Michigan's schedule looks than it did last year. Is the selection committee going to truly agree with that versus a schedule of, let's say, Arizona in the new Big 12? So if you're not sure that the selection committee is going to actually value strength of schedule, I get wanting to lock that in and just being like, nope, we'll just play it out and we'll make our conference race more exciting down the stretch because people will be jockeying for positions that they know will get them in mm-hmm. to the playoff, even outside of qualifying for the Big Ten championship game or the SEC championship game. So I, I think those are the main reasons is to take out the risk that the selection committee isn't making decisions you would agree with or kind of, you know, valuing what you want them to agree with, Grace. But I, I just don't know if that is enough to convince like the general college football public that this is a good idea or that obviously like the SEC and Big Ten did this to themselves. Like they expanded, they added these teams and now they're like, we have a lot of really good teams that need to be part of the playoff. But I don't think that casual fans or fans of teams in, let's say the ACC or the Big 12 who are now being asked to possibly accept a different number of AQs and a different level of revenue. I don't think anyone, they're going to take this as something that is going to be spun as like better for college football as a whole. Like, I think people understand why the big 10 and the sec want it, but I don't know if it makes the same case as like, Oh, this is good for college football as a whole as, as the commissioners did when they first presented us with the 12 team model and all the different pieces of that and access points for people. Yeah. And I've seen the arguments, right. That like, well, the ACC and the big 12 should be I don't know if grateful is the right word, but they are now guaranteed more spots than maybe they would have gotten in the past. I've seen those arguments where like they're now going to get two teams in each. And when was the last time, whatever, both of those conferences had four combined teams worthy of playoff consideration, but it's sort of coming at the expense of like acknowledging, accepting and admitting that you're a second tier conference. Like it's like you have to like, this is just where we are. Like they, you almost have to sell your soul in order for this agreement to, to make any sense. And so 
um, if you if you can't catch up, it's just like where what happens? Is this like does, it's, is this just cyclical? It's kind of like when you talk about catching up, it makes me think of the pro sports model where there are salary caps. Um, where like the NFL shares revenue evenly, they don't give more money to the bigger markets. Um, you have a draft to try yeah. to spread out the the wealth and the talent. And this is kind of the opposite. This is the rich getting richer and then making it sure that they will maintain their perch atop the sport and the resources and the way that it will continue forward. Um, Grace, before we move on, you obviously cover the ACC incredibly closely. The ACC. We, we know the unrest internally. We know Florida State is in the middle of active litigation against the conference. <laughs> casual offseason. Yeah, casually. <laughs> the offseason's busier than the seasons, as, as uh, folks listening to this know. Um, but it's, it's drier material. But the ACC that I think is different from the Big 12 is ACC has more teams that, are, that could be national championship contenders. Like the top of the ACC, you have Clemson, you have FSU. North Carolina certainly would want to be in the position to play for the playoff. Like there are teams in this Miami. We always talk about can Miami be back and be in that that position. It's got to be a harder sell in the ACC when you're also worried about defections to be saying like we agree to a model where the Big Ten, the SEC have more access. Right. As you're as our one of our most prominent members is actively trying to hopefully maybe go join one of those conferences. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just I don't know. It's like. I guess there's just a level of acceptance because I like I think if you're the ACC and the Big 12, the only thing that's worse than agreeing to these terms, right, is like the SEC and the Big 10 just totally bouncing, right? And then you're like completely left out. At least you have a seat at the table as opposed to, you know, looking around trying to figure out where your place is in the sport. But I don't know. It just it feels like we got here like so quickly, too, that which we're all just trying to like collectively wrap our heads around just like. All right, this is college football now. If you're not in one of these two conferences, good luck. Oh, and also conference championship games like don't matter anymore, or do they? Or are we going to well, play them? I mean, they're they're still in the model. I think you are st- essentially saying that both teams that participate in them for those four conferences get in, right? So it still has a piece, and I think it, the lead up and you know the the pitch around it, which. Also, these are conference championship games that have been negotiated. They're part of these media rights deals, so. There's reasons to keep them right now. I think if you go bigger, you have to look at changing that potentially. Um, but it's it's absolutely what you're saying, Grace. I think what you're saying is how a lot of people feel. Um, TCU's athletic director, Jeremiah Donati, uh, was just kind of talking about this generally, not about the specific model. And he said, uh, or Chris Manini was there, he's talking to local reporters. He said, it feels as though there's two conferences trying to stack the deck versus everyone else. And I feel like that is a very good summation of this and about continuing to stay in a different stratosphere than the big 12 and and the ACC, which I think is, is part of this pitch um, is to have that clear separation. But there are plenty of teams that are going to have access to this that have kind of been boxed out of the playoff in the past in the way that it was a four team invitational um, divisional reasons. Uh, and, and that brings us to Audrey, the team you cover at Penn mm-hmm. State. Wait, I have a dumb question. Can I ask a dumb question before we sure. move on? Yes. So if the Big Ten and the SEC are automatically going to get three teams in each, what is the, like, does that not incentivize teams in each of those leagues to come in third so that you don't have to play in a conference championship game? You don't have to risk anyone getting hurt and you still know that you have a spot. 
Um, Grace I is would... already trying to skirt the system over here. <laughs> she already is trying try to find the loopholes in our like. In I our guess, three, like three, three, two, two. What's the uh, like? What's the yeah. downside to just saying, "All right, let's just be, let's just make sure we're third. Okay, so seating, I think, right? Yeah, seating will be affected by this. I think. Okay, um, and again, there's also three at large spots, so there's like a cushion, right? You could still get another team in, but I think that it, the teams that are going to be playing in the conference championship game in the Big Ten and the SEC are going to be playing for those buys. You know, the That's top fair. two okay. teams are going to be getting buys. So the first um, round buy. Yeah. And the idea of, again, the higher you finish, if you don't get one of those top buys, you get a home game, right? So I think you're still going to be shooting for those okay, as fair. high as you can get in the system. But no, it's fair. And and I also think with these mega conferences, the tiebreakers or pro- procedures are going to be complicated. Like it's going to be an interesting race for third um, if it ends up being this model where there are three AQs, but this is the one that's gotten the most discussion. It's been about a week since the commissioners met in person. Um, they are hoping to continue to work through this. It's going to be really complicated. There's college basketball tournaments happening. Um, I know a lot of these meetings are going to have to be on Zoom. Like we'll we'll see what happens here, but they do need to figure these things out, lock all this in, um, and and get us started for the 12 team model to come. But Audrey. Penn State is a team that's going to benefit as soon as mm-hmm. this fall starts, right? Like, obviously, the schedule is getting harder with the new Big Ten. But this is a team that, because they have not been able to beat Michigan and Ohio State in the same season, hasn't been able to play for the college football playoff, right? Like, this yeah. is, it, it's it's weird when you're in the, a couple of divisions where you can get boxed out. You might be the second best team in the conference, one of the top 10 best teams in the in the land or the fifth or sixth best team Mm -hmm. but you have not been able to access the playoff so i want to talk about teams that we think could bounce back this year that could return to form or exceed expectations relative to last year's outlook and it's really interesting when we start with the nittany lions because a lot of people were talking about them as a potential playoff team this time last year and throughout the off season but you weren't sure that they could beat both of the big dogs that they could beat Ohio state and Michigan. Uh, they, they obviously didn't. Um, but I want to talk about what happened last year and how that sets your expectations for this off season and where they're headed. Yeah. I thought that they would split with Ohio state and Michigan. I actually thought they would beat Ohio state. Um, I guess my read on Ohio state was a little bit more accurate, but my read on Penn state was terribly wrong. Um, I did not predict that Penn state would be replacing all three coordinators, offensive, defensive, and special teams this off season. Um, that is where they're at. I thought that drew Aller was going to be a bona fide superstar. I thought that yeah, they had issues in the receiving core, but it would work himself. It would work themselves out, and you know you have these two great running backs and Nick Singleton and Katron Allen. Yeah, the offense was a mess, and the coordinator got fired like right after they lost to Michigan. Um, after they had that dud of a performance against Ohio State, so you know what, Nicole, I am done buying into the like maybe this year you know sentiment um (laughs) because it's just it feels like this is a program that is habitually 10 and 2 and yes a lot of that was because of the star-studded big 10 east and you're always playing ohio state and michigan uh but you know one of the things and you mentioned the point and i've written about it we've talked a lot about it is yeah penn state would beneficiate would be one of the biggest beneficiaries of the, the expanded playoff but my question is this would the fan perception change at all if they made the 12-team playoff, but they couldn't get out of the first round? 
right? And that to me is like you still have that divide, that hierarchy in this sport between your top two and three programs and, you know, 10 through 12. Um, so I am not going to, I'm not here to gas up the Nittany Lions, um, but I will tell you that I do think they made a really good uh, coordinator with Andy Kotelnicki, their new OC, came from Kansas. Um, but th- the interesting thing that we're going to see this spring is how much of this offense is truly Andy's and what he's done before, because so far what we're hearing is that they're trying to blend uh, a lot of what they had done in the past. So I-, I am curious what that looks like, but here you are already year three for Drew Aller and the guy that we thought would be competing for the Heisman. Now we're just t- still trying to figure out like, what is this guy's deal, right? It's an interesting point because I remember when they were going into that Ohio State game last year and we all thought that Penn State had the better quarterback or, mm-hmm. or sh- could have the better quarterback. Um, and I remember watching that game and in part because of the way the game went, but also what they were asking Drew Aller in that game, it just felt like they kind of broke him a little bit that mm-hmm. there were that there were things that happened coming out of that game that pre-Ohio State Drew Aller would have been fine with or would have played differently in, in some of those performances down the stretch. So let's talk about the new OC. Obviously, also DC, you lose Manny Diaz, mm-hmm. he goes to Duke. And now you have Tom Allen, very familiar with the Big Ten, um, coming in as DCs. But let's start on the offensive side. So let's go over some additions, subtractions, changes. Again, if they do add some tweaks or, or the system ends up being somewhat similar, or we see pieces of what worked at Kansas, what that would actually look like. Yeah, I think a lot of pre-snap motion. I think that's the thing that um, I talked with Drew Aller a couple of weeks ago. They had a, one of their off-season availabilities, and that's what he's been excited about. But they also there's an interesting wrinkle here, too, uh, in that what Penn State is elected to do is their quarterback's coach is Danny O'Brien, who they've thought really highly of. He's been a GA. They've been trying to like figure out he was also here before as an analyst, like what to do with him. So your quarterback's coach is a grad assistant, while Andy Kotelnicki will kind of float around between the staffs, which I think is a really interesting wrinkle. And I'm sure if things do not go well this year, nobody will overreact to the fact that there's a GA working with the quarterbacks. I think everybody will, will be <laughs> fine with that. Uh, but no, I mean, this is somebody who they think really, really highly of. But, you know, the early kind of feedback that I've been getting from people with uh, Andy Kotelnicki in the meeting room is that he's an energizer, right? This is a guy, you look at what he was able to do at Kansas. You look at what he was, he was able to do at Buffalo. Um, you've got the running backs here where you could see both of these guys and Nick Singleton and Catron Allen have really big years. That's something that happened when he was at Buffalo with Jarrett Patterson. But you also could say, well, okay, what is the strength of this team? Because we know the receiving core is still that question mark. Like nothing, while the bodies have changed in that room, the coaches have changed, that receiving core is still the biggest question. And they go out, they add Julian Fleming from Ohio State. You get the Pennsylvania guy that fans were clamoring for before. Um, he's finally a Nittany Lion. You got one year to figure out what you have with Fleming. Um, but his Ohio State career kind of raises the question of, was this guy really, should he have been a five-star prospect? Should he have been viewed as one of the best players in the country? Uh, no doubt about it. He can help you out on the perimeter with his blocking. Uh, but I think the, the kind of the question is, is who stretches the field here for you? And is there still more help potentially to come in that next portal window, which is like right after their spring game in April. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Grace, I want to move over and talk about Clemson in, in the same type of vein. We're looking at teams bounce back expectations that are either higher than what they've been, right, as we talked about with Penn State, or back to where we have been used to talking about them, which is with Clemson, which is a national title contender, uh, a CFP regular. And we have dissected this team and this program so much over these last couple of years as they've been, you know, kind of in the the tier below the tier they're used to be in. So let's talk about where they stand this offseason. I think there are still going to be a lot of people who um, expect them to win the ACC or contend to win the ACC. Um, I think, you know, Florida State's emergence last year was... Uh, was was I think really good for college football. I, I think it's great when you get people programs back, you know. But Clemson is still around. Clemson is still going to have some of the best players in the country. How do you evaluate where they are this off season and what they need to do to get back to where they expect to be? I think they're an interesting team because. In some ways, and I know that this is going to sound crazy because they still won nine games last year, but in some ways, I don't know that it could be worse than it was a season ago. Like just everything that seemed like it could go wrong for them, whether it was turnovers or the offense just still not clicking. Um, This was like a group that, uh, despite hiring a new coordinator last year and Garrett Riley took a year or took a step back, right? We can all agree. Like this Clemson team took a step back in 2023. However, um, I like the pieces that they return. You've got Kate Klubnick coming back for his third year. You've got Phil Moffa coming back in that running back role where he can sort of take the, the lion's share of the carries now that Will Shipley is gone. Um, you've got two big-time wide receiver recruits coming in in Bryant, Wesco, and TJ Moore. TJ Moore, I think, got his fifth star about a month ago. Um the defense was actually pretty good last year, right? Like this was a pretty good team defensively. They've got a lot of pieces coming back. So I just think they've got a little bit more continuity. And then you look at the changes that Dabo made this off season, um, bringing in Chris Rump to coach defensive ends and uh, Matt Luke to coach offensive line. And I think that was another message from Dabo of like, all right, we gotta, we gotta get this thing rolling again. Is what Clemson wants to be and what they were, is it possible 
to be this in 2024. I mean, the years that Dabo dominated the sport or co-dominated with Alabama, right? Where we saw the two teams meet all the time, could basically pencil it in. That was before the portal opened the way that it is and before <laughs> yeah. the you know Uh-oh. the immediate eligibility Uh-oh. before you NIL. Said portal. I did say portal, but it it was before these adjustments that kind of exacerbated transferring and player movement. Um, and now obviously there's been different court rulings that have also impacted the way that this stuff works currently and temporarily. So like, is the way that Clemson wants to build a roster, maintain a roster, develop, like, is that doable? I think it's idealistic. Um, and, and, but no short answer. No. And I think Dabo knows that though. Like we did a big piece on Clemson and every single person that we talked to that has spent time with him or knows him well has said he will adjust. He's just going to do it on his own way, his own pace. Um, he will come around eventually. Um, <laughs> I think that he has eventually, <laughs> eventually, I think that he is still someone who, if he had his way, would build it entirely through the high school model, would develop these kids. Like he still hasn't used the portal in a meaningful way. Um, Brent Venables was someone that we heard had sort of pushed back on that mentality a little bit um, in, in meetings. But um, I think the days of roster management, what they looked like five years ago are gone. Like there, it's just, it's just evolved so much. And I think you have to be willing to dip into the portal a little bit. And then Clemson's issue as well um, is they had two of the greatest quarterbacks in program history during that run in Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence. And you talk to people around Clemson and it, it, you, it comes up like maybe Trevor and Deshaun just masked some stuff. You know, maybe there were some issues that we kind of saw come to light this year um, that having a quote unquote generational quarterback, even though they were three years apart, um, you know, sort of helped with. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I think Clemson is one of the most fascinating teams in the country next year for that reason alone. Do you guys, I'm sure you do hear this at, at different points. Cause one of the things that's come up is, you know, you mentioned the portal and the willingness to, to rely on the high school teams, right? That that's been Clemson's model. Uh, Penn state's never going to be like Ole Miss where they're not going to go portal heavy. Like that is not, that is not them, but they will obviously use it more than Clemson. Um, one of the things that I hear a lot about, and I'm sure you guys do too, is the willingness of some of these other coaches to say, we don't want to identify talent early, especially with quarterbacks, because all these other teams are going to come in, then they're going to pluck our guy. Um, and I just wonder, right? Like we say about finding that generational talent at quarterback, then obviously maybe you get a chance at that guy if it happens in the portal. Uh, but it just seems like you cannot, obviously you can't run a program like Clemson by, by doing that. But I wonder how much of that is, does Dabo maybe warm up to it by saying, okay, like I can kind of re-recruit some of these high school guys that I didn't get. Like, is that what it takes to like maybe open his eyes on it and be like, oh, you didn't get them the first time. Like maybe this is your chance. Like, cause everybody that, or most of the guys that Penn state has brought in, there's been a really strong connection from their high school recruitment where they've sure. continued that line. And it was like, you know what? Like, Hey, we didn't get Julian Fleming the first time around but we liked how we, how we recruited him the first time. And that helped us, you know, in the portal. So maybe we just have to kind of help like Dabo think in, in those terms of like, you're, you're doing high school recruiting point, like 2.0 or something. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that was one of the things that when we reported our Clemson story, I thought was so fascinating when we, I talked to Eric McLean, who obviously you guys both know, he played at Mm -hmm. Clemson. He's now on the ACC network. Um, 
But he was like, you know, as, as competitive as Dabo is, you would think that he would want to just go out and dominate the portal because yeah. he wants to dominate every other area of of his job and his life. And so that part I thought was was an interesting way to look at it is that like Dabo is so competitive, maybe more so than people give him credit for. Um, and yet this one area has been the the one piece that he has, you know, sort of removed himself from. I feel like we've been saying this for two off seasons, but it's going to be fascinating to see how this <laughs> plays out, how he handles the changing world of college sports. Um, and again, like how this all plays out in a different playoff format. I mean, we'll be talking about teams differently. We won't be writing them off as soon as they lose in September as we have in the past. Um, but also, you know, as, as Tyler from Spartanburg has put it, Ugh. people do expect a lot out of Clemson, you know, like they can't have four losses. They can't be in those worlds. And that is also not going to fly in an ACC, you know, again, if you're looking down the road and, and it's going to be harder to access the playoff because the big 10, the SEC teams are going to be all over the place. Um, you know, they're going to need to, to step it up and, um, and, and we'll see how this goes for Clemson this offseason. I want to hit on a couple of other teams quickly. Obviously, you guys are, uh, it's not like you've covered them for years, but I do want to talk about Texas A&M more macro, more from a macro standpoint, um, because, you know, you're coming off of the biggest coaching buyout ever being paid to not have Jimbo Fisher coaching this team. You have Mike Elko, who um, I think we we all know we like him. He's just a normal guy, which is what Texas A&M Are there needs. those in this sport? <laughs> Are well, there? I mean, more normal than others, right? It's a spectrum, yeah. but yes. Normal-ish. Like, <laughs> compared to what Texas A&M has tried to do, um, I think bringing in someone who has won a, a place like Duke that's really hard, who spent a lot of his, well, most of his career at schools that don't have the most talent in their conference um, and have, has worked their way up through like the Northeast football scene and mm -hmm. other places, Bowling Green, Wake Forest, before getting to A&M and Notre Dame and those types of schools. Um, you know, this is a team that we have watched the roster on the team change and leave after all of the hullabaloo. Ooh, I've been wanting to get that word in. That's, good That's a good That's a word. word. Around that number one ranked recruiting class, the war that it gave us between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher, everything that happened with that, we've seen a lot of, of, of those players leave. Um, we've seen this as a program that's been hit hard by quarterback injuries. Um, obviously, Cotter Wegman last year, four games in two years. Um, but this is also a program that has felt very much like it, it runs up against a win total, and that's been its ceiling, right? Eight, eight wins. Can they get through? Can they... Can it be better? The SEC schedule is going to get harder, right? You're adding Texas and Oklahoma. They're still at eight, eight league games, but everything is going to be harder. It's going to be harder to be in the middle of the SEC pack. It's going to be harder to get into that top group. It's going to be harder to get into the playoff, to win in the playoff. Um, and that's really what A&M is, is trying to do. They, they lost key players. A lot of transfers left. It's an unsurprising um, but they do have a lot of incoming transfers, and it's the second-ranked portal class, uh, according to 24-7 Sports. I think we'll get a really good sense right out of the gate in week one against Notre Dame. Like These are both programs that, that kind of need to make a statement. Um, but you guys, like, what is your take on what Mike Elko needs to do in year one? Like, what, what the foundation he needs to set? Audrey, maybe we'll start with you. 
um, of like, what is success for him in year one coming out of the Jimbo Fisher era and everything that that entailed and how he ultimately lost his job? That's a tough job, right? That is a tough job. That is a big boy job. Um, that is a job where, and I think, you know, you go back to, to Jimbo's firing and you say, yeah, how bad does this place want to win? It's that bad, right? That you take on that kind of buyout that you do that. Uh, one of the things that I, I think, and I don't know uh, if they're going to be or how well positioned they maybe will be to do this, but one of the things that always stood out to me with AM the last few years was that they were recruiting Philadelphia really well, right? Now you've got a lot of talent in the city. And for me, it was all, and again, in recruiting, it's all based on relationships and your assistant coaches and who can work those territories. But I'm curious if Elko tries to do some of that or not, um, because I will tell you for a good while, there were a lot of folks in Pennsylvania that were not too thrilled that, you know, you were getting kids from, from the city that were going to Texas A&M. And it was like, why is this happening? Right. Um, but I, I think you're not going to be, again, I don't think any of these teams want to be long-term a heavy portal team, right? Like, I don't think that's anyone's goal. Um, you can say, yeah, like obviously we saw Colorado flip the roster, right? Like you can do that, uh, in extreme situations, but you're not going to be built that way forever. And I don't think that would be Mike Elko's plan. Um, so, you know, again, you've got so much talent there in Texas that you can kind of lay those inroads, but to me, I want to see what areas do they supplement it with, uh, and is Philadelphia still going to be kind of one of those uh, those kind of outliers for them? Because, yeah, you've got a lot right there, uh, but you've got a fan base that wants to win and that is tired of kind of status quo. Uh, so, yeah, I'm very excited to, to watch them, but to me, I would just kind of see what are those recruiting areas um, and what areas do they supplement? I think they've already raise the bar a little bit. I mean, I was talking to Sam Connor, Texas expert. Um, and he was saying that they're going to go into spring ball with 81 scholarship guys. And last year they went in with 66. Like that is crazy. And so I think in some ways, I don't know that we can put like a, um, a threshold of Elko needs X number of wins for year one to be successful. But just the fact that he's cleaned up the structure of this place, that there's accountability, there's discipline, there's order. Like it just feels like, there's just so much more structure already than the chaos that was going on behind the scenes um, that I think the wins are going to follow. And then also you look at this A&M schedule in, uh, in his inaugural year back with them as the head coach. I think it sets up super nicely for them. They don't play Bama or Georgia. Um, they get LSU, Texas, and Mizzou at home. And their road games are Florida, South Carolina, Auburn, and Mississippi State. All extremely manageable. So his like personality and the way he runs things with sort of the luck they got with their schedule. Um, I think they're ahead of the curve already. Yeah. And it's a great point about kind of structurally organizationally and, and how important that stuff is in college football today. Um, and he's just incredibly bright and, and focused on those things. So that's going to be obviously all eyes on that Notre Dame game, but that's going to be a team. I think that we're going to be watching to watch for those signals that things are different, right? That there's a different, way that they do things they play differently the culture is different like that culture is kind of a catch-all for a lot of things but you know we'll be interested to to watch that one um grace let's talk a little bit about miami um this is a team that was projected to finish fifth in the conference last season they go seven and six um it's obviously not what you want if you want miami and you want to be all the way back but this has been a program we have been waiting to fully break through for a while now they have not 
quite been able to do it for different reasons and different seasons have fallen apart at different times. Um, but they do end up adding Cam Ward after he initially declares for the draft and then decides to come back to college. And he ends up at Miami. Um, and he's just an incredibly fun quarterback to watch. Um, he's electrifying. There's a bunch of key players returning. Um, and then they've also lost some guys. They are, uh, again, in, in the ACC, in a year where the playoff has expanded, there's more at-large spots. This is a league now heading into the second year without divisions. And expectations are to be back, to be back to being nationally relevant and to not be known for not kneeling and <laughs> losing a game that way, which was still the wildest way I've seen a team. Of all the things we saw last season, I think that's still the craziest. Yeah. It, it really was. Um, and so I, I just think like there, there's so much that needs to turn around there. Um, and there have been a lot of different efforts to, there've been times where we thought things were moving in the right direction. They weren't. So Grace, as you look at Miami this off season, are they poised to, you know, contend for an ACC title, contend for the college football playoff? What, what do you, would you buy them? You, you kind of wait and see mode. Where are you on the, on the Canes? I think I'm in the middle of buy and wait and see. Like, I think ideally and re like, not ideally you hope and think they're ready to take the next step. Realistically, I, I'm just not sure. Um, and if it's not this year, I think it has to be 2025, 2026, just with the way that they're recruiting right now, which is a ridiculous rate. I think they signed like 14 blue chippers and had the highest average player rating in the ACC. So um, I'm stuck because I'm like, well, it has to be this year, right? You've got Cam Ward, you've got Restrepo and George coming back at receiver. So I'm like, if it's not this year, when is it? But then you look at the way they're recruiting, you're like, well, maybe it'll be later, but I just don't know. Like, I feel like every year I just keep waiting and waiting and waiting. And then we just, and then just, I don't know. It's just kind of a flop. Well, and what if you wait, Grace, like, right? Like, what if you wait and then those blue chippers, they become somebody else's blue chippers, right? Like that's, I think that's like the, the legitimate fear with so many of these schools. It's like, how do you balance like getting your young guys, your freshmen, your talented freshmen, getting them on the field enough that they're happy um, but also enough that like it's worthwhile get like that whole balancing act to me is fascinating. Um, and yeah, Miami's definitely going to be one of the, one of the most crazy ones where we have to try and see like how that works. I feel like if they <laughs> see to sound mean, but like if not for the, the knee fiasco, I don't know that we're like, I mean, I would still be equally fascinated by them, but that was just so crazy and such a huge disconnect between the game management and the talent they have mm -hmm. on their roster. That That's what I think makes them so fascinating is that you could be on top of the world in this talent accumulation role. And then the literal bottom when, when it comes down to like the game on the line and you have to make a very basic decision. So I don't know if that game made them more fascinating to me, but it's just, I don't know. That juxtaposition is just, is just interesting to me. Well, and I think that's that's where when you talk about different coaches and when you're evaluating coaches, it's like game day management. Sure. Also, the, again, like the talent acquisition piece, how great of their recruiter, do they develop players? Do they hire their staff well? But like there are certain coaches that are examples of all of those things and and have one but need to improve on another. Um, and I, I think that that is, is such a great example of this where Again, Ari's favorite metrics. Uh, you guys talk about this all the time in Stars Matter. That the talent piece, Miami's had right. Miami's had talent, yeah. and this is also why you bring in Mario Cristobal, right? Is for the talent and the recruiting. 
Um, but you do need to piece it together, right? The patience doesn't last forever just because you're winning on signing day. Um, and so that one's going to be a, a really fascinating fall as well. And, and again, we'll get a better sense of where they are um, early on at Florida. And, um, you know, Florida, another team that we uh, will be dissecting quite Jeez. a bit this offseason. Uh, they've <laughs> got a lot that they need to prove. So there's a lot of a lot of people where uh, there's there's some pressure building. Um, even though it's only, you know, the springtime. You know, as we're recording this here at the end of February, early March, it is like peak basketball season. And there's been a storyline that has uh, transcended. And I was part of a writing team. We had a piece that ran in the New York Times about this issue um, as well. And that's court storming. And this is something we debate about football season, right, too, about field storming. As well, Grace, you've covered Clemson where they they rush the field very kind of casually after every game. <laughs> and if people have never seen that before, they wonder, hey, why are you guys doing that when you beat the Citadel? Well, it's just kind of how, <laughs> how Clemson always exists. But, you know, this is something that does cross over in college sports. Um, and this year in basketball, it's very much at the forefront because of Kyle Filipowski, how his teammates go to help him get off the court after, you know, someone runs into his knee. He ends up playing. He didn't miss any time, but, um, you know, he sprains his knee and John Shire goes off about why, why aren't these things banned? Duke does get stormed on a lot. So does Iowa women's basketball right now. So Caitlin Clark also had a collision with a fan um, after Ohio State upset the Hawkeyes. So when you have, you know, star players in the sport getting, you know, contacted by play by by fans and certainly the wake forest example i think too the fact that you know we've all seen the stills and there were there were fans on the court before zero this does become a an important conversation because it is a safety question as well so um grace you've covered a lot of basketball you have witnessed the clemson i'm going to say field storms but it's like again the kind of like meander and end up eventually on the field it's a tradition so what do you make of the debates about how, you know, the the net positive of the excitement from the events, but also the concerns and and if there is even anything you could do to get students not to try to rush the court to end with an upset as close to midcourt as they can get. I feel so stuck on this issue because I don't know that there's any middle ground, right? Like, I don't know what the solution is to make it safer. <laughs> Maybe the meanders the middle ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, look, People hate on Clemson's, I think they call it gathering at the Paul. I think it's kind of fun. Like kids are on there throwing the football, playing catch, and everyone knows it's happening. And so it's not like a mad dash. It is a a nice, you know, casual little stroll. Um, But it's, it's tough, right? Because, you know, as fans of the sport, you love the excitement. You love the upsets. Um, College sports right now have been so frustrating, just shooting themselves in the foot that like when we get a moment of fun, it's like, Oh yes, this is like pure again. Um, but I don't, I don't know that there's a middle ground solution. Like I don't, I don't know that you can say, well, you can still have them, but here's the plan. Like, it just feels like it, it is kind of like you either can or, or can't have them. I don't, I don't know what the, I don't know. What I like do. them. I like them a lot. And this might make me sound really, really bad, but like, I love, like to me, that's the excitement, right? So They're I fun. Covered- yeah, like this is you hit on it, Grace, where it's like this sport has so many reasons why you can or the college sports as a whole have so many reasons why you can hate on it and justifiably so. But when you get those pure moments, right, the energy in the building, um, I was at 
Penn State, Illinois last week and, you know, Penn State basketball. It was I went to the game because they were playing in their old building rec hall, which is where they usually don't play. And I made the joke beforehand. I said, oh, yeah, haha, if Penn State upsets them tonight. These people are going to go crazy. They're going to storm the court. It's going to be a scene. Yeah, sure enough, that's what happened. <laughs> uh, Penn State won. And the thing that I was looking at, though, was, you know, you have Terrence Shannon Jr. at, at Illinois. Obviously, Penn State students were chanting a lot of things at him throughout the game, like many fan bases have this year. Uh, so my eyes right away went to him because I'm thinking, OK, the students are coming. He's still there. Like, is there any interaction? And Illinois did a really nice job of creating like a little bit of a shield in front of their players. So the Penn State people, they were doing their thing. Some Penn State players went over like I think they were kind of oblivious to the court storming and like went over to shake hands like a normal post game. Uh, it was like this wholesome moment that's unfolding while the students are like behind them losing their minds. But it was like a nice like I because, again, I thought the security did a nice job because you shielded the players from it. So you didn't have any crazy interactions the fans got their court storming moment. I got the visual that I went to see. Um, and I think, you know, so many sports fans, when you talk about moments that you love as a sports fan, it's going to be those moments, right? It's going to be the court storms. It's going to be the field storms. Um, I covered Penn State, Iowa, uh, not gosh, not basketball, football, uh, when the Hawkeyes started storming the field there a few years ago, right? And they're, you know, that's it's so close on the sidelines there that they're coming over and funny story about that during the field storming and as reporters, like, you know, you have to kind of have your head on a swivel during those moments. Cause it, I mean, it's everybody everywhere and you're just like, I'm trying to get video and just stay out of the way. Right. Like you never want to become the story or get trampled. <laughs> and I have, I have a fan who comes up to me and they just look at me and they go, do you have any pins? And I have like no idea what they're talking about. And I was like, do I have any pins? I was like, no, no. So like I go move along, get my video. Somebody else, do you have any pins? And I'm, I say to the person next to me, I'm like, I do not get like, what is happening? They're like, you're wearing your Rose Bowl lanyard. Do they think you're a bowl rep? So here <laughs> during the field storm, and I was like, oh my God, like this is so embarrassing. So yeah, during the field Stop. storming, they thought I was a bowl rep. Wait, have I, so I was in that field storm too. Um, me, you and Scott Dockerman were all yes. covering that game. And my favorite moment in that post game was we were trying to get to the locker rooms or like we're trying to get to the opposite tunnel. And Scott is a celebrity in Iowa State. Yep. Scott is the so best human in the world. He's Fantastic also so guy. tall and recognizable. So like we had multiple people coming up to us and being like, oh, my God, Scott, like I'm such a big fan of yours, whatever. And then some of the students like started to part the the sea for Scott. And, like so that they could help. They were like, the writers need to get through. The writers need to get through. I was like, this is the most polite field storm I have ever been around. It's because of Amazing. Scott Dockerman. They love him. Yeah, he should just All-star. run them all. Let him let him be the czar of field storms. <laughs> it's it, I, what you guys are saying is totally true. And it's funny because even like Jay Bill has had his strong take about oh my like rest, very rest strong take. all the students. <laughs> Um, what did he say? Detain them? Did like, arrest or detain or like ticket them? I mean, again, that would work. That people would stop doing it the second you did that. I mean, part of the reason you don't have it in the NFL is like you run onto the field, you get arrested. Like that's part of the process. Um, plus, like those tickets closest to the field are very expensive. How it's would you do that though? Like handing out three thousand tickets? Like, <laughs> no, I mean, and that's why, like, be like, see ya. You got a field storm citation. Like, yeah, hang yeah. that up in the dorm. You're gonna like put it, it on their resume as like it a badge of honor. Work, it doesn't work the, quite the same way. Um, but like, 
ESPN loves the shot of a court storm. Like they, they love do. closing out a broadcast with that. So like, I understand, you know, the, the safety concerns. And I actually spent a, a lot of time over the weekend. I talked to a couple athletic directors about how they prepare for field storms and court storms. And then I also talked to one of the associate commissioners, uh, assistant commissioners, of the SEC, Jeremy Hammond, about like how they do it because the SEC had a working group last year that was looking at court and field storms and they upped the penalties and the fines, which obviously don't really deter anyone. Um, but they also changed some of their safety policies. So like what you were describing, Audrey, of like kind of creating a barrier between the players and the visiting team and the students, that's a big part of it. I talked to Gene Taylor at Kansas State, the athletic director, and K-State had an incident in 2014 with Kansas, Kansas player and Bill Self, and then had to adjust and fix their policies. They rehearse for field for court storms. Like before they play Kansas and Baylor, they rehearse the day before with all their security personnel. They have a couple of cops that are that are near the field as well or the court as well. Um, they will help get officials off, but they they do they try to use rope and they try to create a barrier that allows the visiting team to get to the tunnel. And in basketball, you know, obviously it's a short distance, but short it's fast for the students yeah. to get on the court too. So you have two things, and that's where like people having these conversations about do you have a do you just add a shot clock and give people 30 seconds before they can rush <laughs> after the game ends? I don't know if people are going to actually listen to that, but that would be enough time to get the visiting team it out would. safely or to at least create that tunnel environment. Um, but, you know, another part of this is I, I just think like you need to prepare in advance. So as much as yeah. the team that is favored does not want to think about possibly losing that game, their ops people do need to you know be in contact. And it sounds like that's been happening much more in the SEC since they've made this such a priority of improving the safety because if there's no way to really like stop students from doing this right now, you have to at least try to make it safer. And so I, again, I think it's easy to say we should ban it. It's, it's, it's technically banned. I mean, like you get fined if you do it in almost all of these leagues, like there's, you're not supposed to do this, but it happens. It does create these memories. So I think if you can do it in a safer manner, or you try to have a little bit of a delay, like if a school tried to replicate a little bit, what Clemson always does after their football games, but like kind of copy it in that it's like slightly delayed, that would be totally fine because that would be enough time to get the football team or the basketball team off of the playing surface. And I think that's the big, the big concern, the big issue. And so if you've got to prepare, you've got to plan and, and do it that way to actually get out in front of this issue. Because I'm with you guys, like these are memorable moments and that's why people are never going to stop trying to rush the quarter of the field. Here's the thing, though, I and I get the safety concerns, right? And I think it's going to take somebody getting like seriously injured until like this probably gets the gets sped up, right? Like a legitimate big time injury. I love the moments for the players, though, too, right? I and I too. think so many of them do. Um, when I was at Columbus and Penn State lost to Ohio State one of many times and you know, their <laughs> fans, like they storm the field a lot there, it seems like. And it's not like a full storming, like their students are very close, like you get a lot of stragglers. And I just so happened to be near Saquon Barkley, who played that day, and a fan runs up to Saquon, and I'm thinking, oh boy, what's going to happen here? And the fan runs up and goes, hey, Saquon, you played a really great game. Can I get a selfie with you? Oh. And he took the selfie, and like both people were really like awesome about the moment, and again, like, you don't. You never know how people are going to react. But I'm like, somewhere there's a guy in Columbus who has a selfie with Saquon who's going to tell his grandkids about that. Yeah. Um. You know, and I, and I, but I get it though. Like, we can't predict how people are going to react. But, um, 
That is interesting that teams that prepare for everything, like I've heard of teams preparing, you know, how do you stand for the national anthem and how long we're going to stay? Well, yeah, prepare for court storms, like give them, give them one more thing to think about. Practice it. And then, you know, one, one other thing before we move on, um, is just that, you know, I think if you communicate more with the students and their leaders, you can probably get it to stop. Jerome Tang told K-State fans after they stormed, after they beat Kansas last year, like, you got one. You get to do this one time, and then you're going to act like you expect to win this game, <laughs> and you're not going to do this. And so this year when they beat Kansas, the staff was, like, yelling into the stands, like, don't do it. The students were starting to come down. They were coming down. They were like, nope, we're not doing it. We're not doing it. And they didn't. They didn't storm the court. So if you can communicate, it might work. And if you do that in away from the game day and, and try to work through these things or figure out a different way to celebrate. But again, some of the punishments that would actually try to deter it, I just don't think are reasonable. The SEC did look at the idea of like, well, if they storm the court or storm the field, that's an, it's a forfeit. But then you're punishing the players, the players. who maybe just had yeah. like the biggest win of their career for something that they can't control. So like there's a lot of ideas that get thrown around. I don't know which ones are reasonable. And so that's why I just kind of think like, again, you do as much as you can from a safety and planning standpoint, and that's the best you can do right now. But we'll continue to cover if there is any evolution on any of that. Um, Speaking of things that are evolving before we get to our mailbag, early signing day is expected to change. We've talked about that a little bit on this feed. Um, And I reported this last week, but the... Very likely outcome here is that the December signing period is moving up to start the Wednesday before conference championship games. It'll either be a three or seven day window. This is all being vetted and explored by different committees. Um, The commissioners group controls this, so it can be changed pretty quickly. And um, I think the idea here is to Declutter December a little bit. It still has all of the same things, but it switches the order so that you can sign high school players and make that a special moment before the portal opens. We, we've heard so much about high school players feeling like they're getting shafted or like just a total afterthought with the way that where that signing period is. Um, they, they've also been talking about a summer signing period as well, so that you would be three, so you would have summer, December, and then still February. Um, that one is, has less support. It's very mixed reaction so far. So I want to focus a little bit more on December. Grace, you talk to recruiting personnel all the time. You talk to recruits. Um, do you think this would help them? I do. Yeah. Um, to your point, I mean, December is just a mess right now. You've got the end of your regular season and then you are babysitting your commits and then maybe you're playing in your conference championship game and then you're preparing for a bowl game and then you're doing in-homes and then it's signing day and then the portal. And it's just like, I was talking to someone today who was like, yeah, my kids know that like I'm free in February, you know, like December is just nuts. I do. I have talked to a lot of people who still think earlier is better. And I've been surprised. I've talked to probably four or five people who've been in favor of just let the kids sign when they're ready. Um, and maybe that's a window from June to December or have some parameters that sort of bookend it. Um, but it has been interesting that there's not like a, there doesn't seem to be a universal consensus except for December is nuts. And this, this should at least help. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, you, if you, even if you change it by a couple of weeks, it's still bad, right? Like to me, yeah. this it's summer, yeah. Like to me, the summer is like the solution that I think helps, right? Like if you have a player who, 
has, you know, in, in my example, like, okay, this, this is a kid who grew up on Penn state. He's coming to Penn state regardless. Like let that kid sign in July or August, like get it out of the way. Right. Like that's a kid who's locked in. Um, yeah, I mean, December's terrible. Like I don't, I guess Nicole, and you're, you're the person I, I want to ask this to, right? What does changing the order help? Right. Like, it, okay. It eliminates maybe a few slight variables, but in terms of making my life easier in December. What does this do? Okay, so I think that again, there's <laughs> not asking the harder questions. There's not going to be a unanimous answer on how would you want to fix it, right? Everyone can okay. agree that it's a problem and you're going to be adding more playoff games into December. Mm-hmm. But I think you ask people, you ask five coaches. Four of them will say, well, two will say this, two will say this, and one will say keep it exactly where it is. I like it then. Like people will have all different Band. takes on this. And so I think they have surveyed, they've tried to get as much feedback as possible, but uh, they want to, I think, ch- to clear up some of the congestion. So if you have the signing period in the middle of December, that means you're traveling for recruiting while preparing for these meaningful games, while also dealing with coaching changes. So again, that moves up a little bit. Maybe coaching changes move up, right? We've, but we've, we've mm-hmm. seen that over the last few years. There were, what, five before Halloween last year? I mean, like, yeah. there have been years where that has moved up anyway. And we've seen people trying to get their new coach in place by the time the portal opens anyway, at the beginning of December, or it could even be in November some years. Um, so I think that stuff's going to happen regardless, but it does take away some of the travel and some of the crunch of, like, the, the recruiting piece going that late into December. And I think, again fixes the order. So if you believe in the value of high school recruiting and that you want that to be the foundation of your program and you want to make sure these kids are getting their moment, they've already been in a year in years long effort here where there's been COVID extra extra eligibility, which has probably cost high schoolers scholarship offers Mm -hmm. because they've been, you know, using them to fulfill other players eligibility that they all got an extra year. So then you have a signing day that just gets buried and is an afterthought. And everyone's already been so focused on the portal. Maybe coaches are filling more of their needs with the portal because they've got tape of these guys playing against college competition and they sign less, sign fewer high school players because they prioritize the portal. Again, it's going to be up to each coach how they structure who they're signing, but it just prioritizes possibly the high school kids or it at least gets them to go first and they get their moment. Um, we have to see how the calendar will look in addition to this, but again, it's not like it takes it out of the month, but we'll see how the impact of that changes. And then again, when are dead periods and when are not, like, how do you actually alleviate some of the pressure points? Um, I think that they think this might help a little bit. I think they know that it's not like a, it's not going to fix everything. It's not like it suddenly changes the entire world. So we'll continue to track that as that gets closer to being implemented. Really interested to see um, what happens with the summer period as well. Um, But before we go, two quick mailbag questions that I can take the lead on, um, guys. But if you guys have thoughts, please feel free to jump in. Um, This is a question from Andy S. He says, what is the Mac getting out of adding UMass? They declined adding WKU by themselves to avoid an odd number of schools. Have they changed their mind or does UMass somehow increase the Mac's media value, media revenue, or is this a precursor for another move? Which basically also gets us into like, what is the future of being independent um, in college football? Because I 
think that we we don't know if they want to get to an even number. This is a one school edition. Um, I think you can exist at an odd number uh, for a period of time. This is um, obviously a school that has had a relationship with the Mac, but it's to me the bigger thing is why UMass wanted to go to a conference, right? They're leaving a league where they have have all of these ties for basketball that's been really important to their identity in other sports to get to a football conference and to have football housed in a league. And I think that's the bigger takeaway I have about this um, until we hear from Mac leadership about why they wanted to do it and why they wanted to add because they hadn't they hadn't made a move in this last three years round of realignment. But I do think that the independence being down to just UConn, who was in the American and left to go to the Big East and sacrificed football, was willing to go independent to make that happen. And then Notre Dame, who's always in their own category anyway, is because everyone's realizing, A, there's some strength in numbers, uh, but financially, to, to be a part of a league that that is involved in the college football playoff, that has football money, football drives so many of these decisions, and then to be kind of on your own and to be struggling trying to schedule, trying to recruit, especially in the Northeast, really, really hard. Um, so we'll we'll we don't know yet if the Mac has interest in, in going beyond just adding the one. Um, but this is is definitely interesting. It was it was kept very close to the vest. Um, and you know, CUSA and some of these other leagues, like again, WKUs and Conference USA, it, it, there's some serious penalties to try to get out of this conference. You know, they have stabilized in the last few years as well. So realignment striking at all levels of, of Division One is always fascinating to me. Um, but this one in, in particular, UMass was one of the jobs when we did a survey a couple of years ago. I think it was me, Matt Fortuna, and Chris Vanini. We asked coaches, like, what's the hardest job? in college football. And that was one of them. It was UMass and UConn because they're independents. And I think that that is a, a pretty telling statement about what um, what people feel is important for college football moving forward. I don't have anything to add to that. I say follow the money. You want to know why <laughs> something is the way it is? Follow the paper follow trail. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the the college basketball angle of that is going to be the really interesting thing when you look at when you look at these schools. Um, I'm curious. I'll have to go pull the story up because I don't remember our exact results. But where did Syracuse check in on that list? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Because they had to be up there, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, at least you're associated with a power conference, right? Mm-hmm. And that that matters. But, you know, basketball, there's, there's a lot of college basketball purists who have really struggled with a lot of these moves. And even Syracuse, right? When Syracuse went to the ACC. Um because football people are trying to get into places and and being driven by football decisions that affect everything else. But I think also, um, before I get to the last mailbag question, the A10 used to be like a four or five bid league. Um, and so if you're looking at your reality and you're staring down a scenario where maybe there's going to be, it's a one bid league, borderline two, it's also not necessarily the home that it was at different times. And so... There's also bigger questions, I think, with college basketball, and this gets into like the tournament expansion conversation um, about what you do with mid-majors and low-majors and some of these other conferences um, and how this all works in a world where the football money and the money have driven so much of it. So we'll keep covering this decision again. I think it'll be interesting to hear from MAC leadership about it as well, and UMass when they officially announce the move. Uh, Last mailbag question, I know... Audrey is going to have some questions on this from Morgan R. 
With the CFP moving to 12 teams and most likely 14 in the future, are teams disincentivized to play a strong out-of-conference opponent? Michigan played a week schedule last year and was never penalized for doing so. Wouldn't the smart move be to schedule out-of-conference cupcakes and then try to run the table in conference? Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, this, the the smart thing is to not play a challenging conference. I mean, do you look at these schedules, Audrey? Like, you look Brutal. at these Big Ten schedules. Why on earth would you do that? You're you're going to get the the numbers, the metrics, yep. the strength of schedule. Everything is going to happen in conference. Well, here at the 3322, well, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the, the thing is, because, like, Penn State opens at West Virginia this year, right? So you're opening on the road in Morgantown. That's that's big game, right? And you're doing that with the new OC and all those things. Um, that's a game because again, schedules. Maybe maybe our philosophy as a sport has to change on this. Do we need to make our schedules ten years in advance? Right, like maybe something has to change there. Um, but yeah, the whole cupcake piece, like this, has been something that the Big Ten has complained about for a while. Because you, you I mean you always look at it, right? Alabama, they've always have their schedule where they get their tune-up game late in the year. Um, you know, you get that get-right game, right? Why would you not do that, right? If you're able to do that, why would you not do that? And especially in these super conferences, schedule the cupcakes. Now, yeah, it's going to suck for the fans, right? Like, I think fans are going to enjoy, you know, Penn State, West Virginia more than Penn State, Delaware, more than, you know, and no offense to the Blue Hens who were here last year. <laughs> yeah, but, are, um, but but Audrey, aren't they going to be still satisfied because if they get a conference, a season schedule, they'll get to see an Oregon and an Ohio and State. That's and that's the thing, right? Yeah, I mean, like next year you get USC comes to Beaver Stadium, Washington comes to Beaver Stadium. So now, obviously, the schedule you're still kind of dealing with with your previous schedule at this point with West Virginia. But yeah, and now. I say, though, Nicole, would they be satisfied with that or they won't be satisfied? You're going to get portions of all of these fan bases that are going to be mad either way, right? You're going to get people who say, I'm not spending money to come and watch them play Delaware or, you know, I'm going to spend even more money to watch them play UCLA, right? Or I don't care what they do as long as they give themselves a shot to get into this expanded playoff. Uh, But yeah, I I do think the question is a really good one. And I'm curious... um, Will we see any other teams try and get out of schedules or get out of I, games I for next so. year? Right? Like I oh, think I in I general. I mean, these were also scheduled so so long ago. Mm-hmm. But you've essentially the way I think about this is we used to wait like once a decade get like an Oregon Ohio State series. Right yep. now it's going to be regular. So those games have moved in conference because these conferences added big brands. So therefore, you're going to have the challenging opponents, the big matchups, but you don't have to schedule them out of conference anymore. So I do think it is going to be more of a tune-up. It is going to be more of the way that you just described it, Audrey. And I also think that's the smart way to do it. You don't want to beat yourself up for 12 games, you know? And if you can sort of ease into the season or even try to structure it the way the SEC does, where they give their teams a break in November, mm-hmm. it's a smart way to do it. So I do think that's going to happen. I think was Matt Rule talked about this recently. I think he spoke about this. James Franklin has alluded to it He's, as well yeah. about future scheduling. I, I do think we're going to see that absolutely moving forward. And I and I think it's the correct way to approach it because I was a proponent of strong non-conference scheduling and now those games are baked into the into the conference. So um so we'll still have them and I think that's going to be important. Those are great questions by the way. Please continue to send us mailbag questions. 
on the website at theathletic.com slash college football. You can also uh, call us and leave us voicemails on the Until Saturday phone line. It's 316-462-9852. This has been a great time, ladies. I appreciate you both coming on uh, and hitting on so many different topics with me. You're going to want to, if you don't already follow Audrey and Grace, give them a follow online, read their work over at The Athletic. Um, a bunch of great stuff coming just because the off season doesn't mean it's slow. And these two are a great example of what you want to read when you need your college football uh, fix. And I'm Nicole Auerbach. She's Audrey Snyder. She's Grace Rayner. Thanks for listening to us and for hanging with us on the Until Saturday feed. Go follow us. Give us a five-star review. We appreciate all of it. And uh, that'll do it for now. We'll be back soon. <laughs>